husband to stop squeaking his chair. Welcome to Hey Siri, a podcast about psychology, relationships, and most importantly, piping hot tea. Sit down, take a sip, and remember to subscribe as resident pop culture expert Zochi and struggling PhD student Siri take you through the what, why, and how of relationship research and what that means for your non-scientifically researched relationships. All of this research is coming out all the time, but academic literature can be intimidating and difficult to connect to real life. So let us do it for you. Siri will tell us all about what research is taking the psychology world by storm. On today's episode, she will learn all about one of the 90s favorite TV shows, Friends, and we'll take on Ross and Rachel. Are they a good couple? Should they have ended up together? Were they on a break? After hearing a bit from the literature on relationship separation, Zochi will baselessly speculate on people we do not know. In this case, I guess, like, like fake celebrities? Definitely some sort of celebrity. Characters and celebrities. You know, we love adding a little bit of drama. Oh my god, wait, I just saw the next sentence. See, this we yeah. don't we don't plan oh, yeah. this ahead of time. <laughs> Today, Zoch <laughs> will of course be discussing the relationship timeline of Ross and Rachel, but also some behind the scenes drama surrounding Jennifer Aniston and David Schwimmer. Okay. That's what I was missing. I was like, oh nice, nice, nice. <laughs> Okay, so we have an article beforehand, and I feel like this is very relevant. So it was actually published in 2019, but I just couldn't help myself. The title is The Lived Experience of Ambiguous Marital Separation, a Phenomenological Study. It was published by Sarah Crabtree and Stephen Harris in the Journal of Marital and Family Therapy. So just kind of a little bit of an intro. So there's like a lot of research on divorce it's really like a big topic of interest in relationship research especially when you think of like therapeutic interventions for couples and the research on divorce has has kind of moved over time from looking at it as like a single event to examining it through what they call a multiple transition perspective and the new perspective that's emerged more recently kind of acknowledges that divorce is really complicated a lot of times and it often goes through like a bunch of stages rather than just like happening and then having happened. There's a lot of things that happen through the process of going through divorce. As we talked about with Brad and Angelina, like there's like a lot of, it can stretch out for years. But we also know that what precedes divorce can be like just as complicated, if not more so, than what happens during and after the divorce process. So one and antecedent, I always, I can never pronounce that word right, <laughs> of divorce that's kind of understudied in the literature has been is um, marital separation. So just to kind of define what marital separation refers to, and this kind of also applies to relationships that aren't legally, you know, legal marriages, but when a couple is separated, they remain legally married, but they have put their relationship, either formally or informally, that is legally or not legally, on pause because there's been significant relationship distress. So separation has been referred to as this kind of like ambiguous relationship status because it could lead to a bunch of different outcomes. So the couple could get back together and then later decide to divorce or go through another separation. They could end the separation with divorce. They could decide to reconcile. So it's like, it could lead to a lot of different things. And 
Because of that, separation has sometimes been treated as like completely distinct from divorce, and researchers have examined it as a unique process in itself. So this research suggests that couples who have fewer financial and social resources are more likely to stay in a marriage long-term following a separation, probably because, and we'll go over this later, it's, it's harder to divorce when you don't have as many resources because all of a sudden um, you're kind of on your own and you're, tr you're struggling to maybe survive on the minimal income that you have by yourself or the minimal social support that you have by yourself. And couples who stay in a marriage following separation, even, experience greater instability and less happiness compared to never separated married couples. So it kind of looks like separation may not be an entirely productive decision all the time. But notably, there haven't been any qualitative studies on separation. To up to this point. And that's really important because a lot of times when you're first starting to kind of explore a, a fairly new concept, you want to do qualitative studies because a lot of qualitative studies utilize this uh, theory called grounded, I think it's called grounded theory, which is basically like we're not going to start with hypotheses or assumptions. We're going to explore um, people's narratives of this concept and see where that takes us and after hearing from kind of people who are in this situation familiar with the concept then we'll start doing some more kind of targeted analyses with statistics and math <laughs> and all that stuff so most of the research on separation in comparison has utilized previously collected data sets that happen to contain data on separation and other marital variables. So it's like, it's not like those original studies were looking at separation, it's like, oh, they happen to include separation in there. And so that means we might be missing some really important context and information because there haven't been any truly exploratory investigations at this point. So the current study, the authors were concerned with defining the different types of separation and they were specifically interested in um, ambiguous separations which are these separations which have no clear outcome it's not like you go into them thinking okay after this we'll divorce or after this we'll reconcile um, versus unambiguous separations which do have a clear outcome envisioned and this is really important because Previous studies have promoted ambiguous separations as a good option for what they call uncertain marriages, even though there's no empirical research on um, ambiguous uh, separations. And meanwhile, other research has indicated that people are really intolerant of uncertainty and that uncertainty has deleterious mental health associations. And Well, when we were looking at our... Um long-term relationships, one of the qualities that was indicative of a long-term relationship was reliability. Yes. And that kind of sort of is the opposite of uncertainty. Oh my God, like. yes. Yeah, and I'm like so glad you brought that up because you think of, if you think of kind of all of the things that were associated with like good partners in terms of traits, it was like commitment, reliability, like providing, um, support 
and this is the opposite and it's the opposite without any future in which your partner does fulfill those things. So the current study, their primary research question, again, this is exploratory, so there's no hypotheses. So their question was, what is the experience of being separated from a spouse when the separation is initiated without clarity about how it will end because one or both spouses is still deciding whether to divorce or stay married. So some big words here, but they're actually pretty simple. The researchers used a, um, I don't even know how to pronounce this because I've only ever read it, hermeneutic phenomenological design. <laughs> so phenomenological means looking at how people create and find meaning related to their lived experiences via hearing like their narratives about them. And then hermeneutic <laughs> uh, refers to looking at these uh, narratives in relation to the context of the period of history they live in, the interaction between the participant and the researcher, and how the researcher interprets the participant's narrative. So just thinking of like the context surrounding these narratives. Um, you are going to flip, having heard from me about what a good sample size is. But as with most qualitative research, the sample was small. It was 20 heterosexual married individuals. Mm. Who is were, that our smallest sample so far? It most certainly is. <laughs> like, by a lot. Because if you remember the sleep one, that was, like, literally, like, was that was, like, 20,000? That was, like, we had one. There was one of was German so couples that was, like. Working together. Working together. Was a lot. So many, like thousands and thousands, and this is like too many. Because it's hard, like, you're asking people to sit there with you and just tell you deep personal details about their life. <laughs> Versus. I love doing that. <laughs> I know, it's like, it's like um, therapy, but they're not getting anything from it. You're getting something from it <laughs> as a researcher. <laughs> So um, 20 heterosexual married individuals who were undergoing an ambiguous separation from their spouse at the time of the study, all their participants were 25 years or older and had to have at least one child with their spouse or did have at least one child with their spouse. It wasn't clear whether they just happened to have people who had at least one child or whether that was a requirement. That's interesting because that changes things. Yeah. It does. So, but based on the way they recruited, I think it was not a requirement because they recruited the participants through targeted Facebook ads to users whose marital status was listed as married or separated and whose profiles indicated that they were 25 years or older. That was it. So I don't think they required them to have kids. They just happened to have kids. Interesting. Yeah. So the sample was uh, 14 women, 16, or six men. So again, we see that, that, Evidence that women are, are more likely to participate in research than men. <laughs> We're just more, what, what do they call it? Uh, it's like when you're doing something for the good of humanity. <laughs> altruistic? Yeah, women, women are just more altruistic. Um, which, yeah, going back to socialization. The average age was 36.4. Uh, the average number of children was 2.45. <laughs> funny. Wait, what? How, um, I thought that was so, I was like, they couldn't just cut around to. Point four fifths of a children. <laughs> it's like uh, you're, 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 you're pregnant almost. <laughs> and the average length of separation was 5.7 months. So 
They actually, they had one person who had been separated from their spouse for nine years, and that was not included in this average length of separation. So if you excluded that one person, everyone had been separated between, I think it was like three and 24 months. Um, so wow. not that long. I don't know if it was, like, I don't know if I would have included that person who had been separated for nine years, because they included them, mm-hmm. like, in the interviews and the analyses. Mm-hmm. So again, like typical for psychological research, 16 out of 20 participants were white, and 60% of participants reported that their annual household income ranged from either 60 to $80,000 or $100,000 and more. So 30% in each Damn. of those categories. Yeah, so that's crazy. High income people. So I mentioned that they recruited on Facebook. They also like solicited personal contacts, which is basically like they asked people in their social network, like, do you know anyone who is separated from their spouse right now? But they only got three participants that way. So, Because <laughs> that's so awkward. I know. God. So in terms of their procedure, each participant was scheduled for a 60 to 90 minute semi-structured interview, and most of them actually happened via phone call. When we say semi-structured, they had questions that they, that they had pre-prepared to ask, but based on how the participants' discussions went, they may ask them in a different order or ask follow-up questions. So that's mm-hmm. what that means. So first, each participant was asked to talk about their experience of marital separation. That was like the main one. And then they were asked a couple questions about their relationship, um, reconciliation, and whether the ambiguous separation helped to make the future of the marriage clear. And then after completing the interview, they got a $25 gift card to an online retailer. And I'm like, ooh, did they get to choose? <laughs> Amazon. <laughs> yeah, am- no, um, Bed Bath & Beyond. I feel like it's always Amazon. <laughs> Etsy. <laughs> so... The race, in terms of how they did the analyses, uh, they, they did use basically grounded theory. So, and it's funny because it's like, it's, it's like almost, I mean, it's, it's scientific, but it's, it's tough. So the researchers first coded the verbatim transcribed interviews with different codes that tried to capture what they called the essence of what each participant was expressing in separate or clustered sentences, depending on how long they talked about like one specific thing. Then they went through everything again with the purpose of coding key statements that they said seemed particularly essential or revealing. And then finally, they reviewed the codes to construct uh, essential and supporting themes. And this work involved continual reassessment. When you're using grounded theory analysis, you're actually supposed to be starting the data coding while you're still doing interviews. And then you're discussing with the researchers and then they brought on two external auditors to validate the codes uh, so it was a very a very it was a process that was continually checked with multiple people at each point to make sure that like it's kosh exactly yeah to make sure that no one was just like that the themes made sense that the codes made sense that no one's just gone through a bad breakup exactly yes so in terms of the findings, and they talked about the main or what they called essential themes, and then within the essential themes, there were the supporting themes. So when participants spoke about their experience of ambiguous separation, there were, I think, like six main themes or essential themes. The first one was, our relationship feels ambiguous. 
So participants, so beyond like being in an ambiguous separation, participants felt really uncertain about their relationship status, relational boundaries, what the terms of the separation were. They said it was really tough because separation was like this in-between gray space and they didn't know how to interact with their spouse. They didn't know whether it was going to end in reconciliation or divorce. And a lot of them said that either they or their spouse was more invested in reconciliation than the other. So if they even did maybe have kind of goals, they were discrepant between the spouses. That's not good. Yeah, and then they also didn't want to take any definitive action to get them out of that in-between space, like separating finances or making custody arrangements because they weren't sure like whether the marriage might ultimately survive. They didn't want to make any decisions that were like permanent. And this is, I think, where what we're going to talk about a little bit comes in. Only five out of 20 participants discussed extramarital dating with their partners explicitly. The others relied kind of on their own thoughts and their own beliefs about what would be appropriate in the situation. And so unfortunately, what that meant was that some participants were really clear that they would divorce their partner if they found out they were dating, even though that Mm -hmm. had never been discussed as an issue or at all. Mm. So pretty common. And this lack of clarity made discussions of the separation with children and extended family difficult because they weren't sure what to tell them. And in fact, like family members would express frustration with them about the ambiguous separation, which then like made it even more stressful for the participants. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that becoming a, a frustrating situation yeah. for the family, especially children. Yes. And that kind of leads us to the next thing, which is separation is a private experience. So they kind of, participants varied in the amount of disclosure about the separation that they told to others. Uh, A lot of them kept the situation pretty private because they were just really stressed about negative judgments they might get or people gossiping about them. And they, it was like, even if they wanted to talk to other people about it, it was like, they said it was super difficult to even explain it because it was so ambiguous. And so they just were like, like, I'm not even gonna try And then when they did end up disclosing to others, they often felt like their close friends and family just did not get how complex the situation was. And so the feedback was like unhelpful or even insulting. So like a participant said that like their uncle or their dad or something was just like, just move on. And they were like, no, like you don't understand. Yeah. And I think it's also hard because a relationship is such a personal Mm -hmm. experience to share with another person, like a romantic and intimate relationships specifically because and so it's hard to get advice from anyone or talk to them about the situation because each person has such different opinions on it that they hold really close to their hearts mm-hmm. that so you know if they disagree with you it might not be the time to even say it even if they do oh, disagree yeah. but it, they care so much about it that they feel like they have to tell you yeah and and like they want to help you but I think also it's difficult because it's like when you're married your relationship is actually a really public thing but like the inner works workings of it are really private so it's like people may know may think they know what's going on but then they actually have no idea and then you're separated and they're like how did this happen and you're like yeah we don't know what's gonna happen and they're like well why can't you just make a decision so yeah and then that 
kind of that inability to share kind of leads itself to the next thing, which was separation is a lonely experience. So like most of the participants said that they had really intense feelings of loneliness that ended up kind of overshadowing the problems in their marriage and made it more tempting to just get back together without resolving their problems because they would there were like daily reminders of their spouse in the house that reminded them that they they weren't there anymore um and had you know they would like realize oh yeah i'm like making dinner by myself and then get really depressed all of a sudden even if they felt fine before Mm. and then like they saw their kids less because maybe their kids were Mm. um with their other parent and that's so hard yeah and then uh like this was pretty expected, I think, but in 15 out of 17 separations that involved dependent children, um, the mom took on primary caretaking responsibilities. So, of course, for women, this was like they're dealing with this relationship issues and the separation and everyone else. And then also now they are like the primary adult taking care of the kids alone. Yeah. And they have to be explaining to the kids what's going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah trying to keep everyone together yeah um and then there was so there was this theme of benefits to separating so 18 out of the 20 participants did indicate that they uh found some benefits from the separation so some felt that the separation took the pressure off the relationship because they weren't constantly like around the spouse or like specifically having to assume like emotional labor related to the relationship so like having to check in on them and knowing where they were and like getting into arguments because of like things around the house um daily life was sometimes easier because like all of a sudden they were only responsible for their own like or their like dependent children's wants and needs versus like another full-grown adult where it can get kind of kind of exhausting having to um think of them all the time and they also expressed that the separation was often a catalyst for positive change both in themselves and their spouse so like for example one of them said that their spouse started therapy as a result of separation hmm. um and but it was interesting because in the catalyst for positive change sub theme they only had one quote So I'm curious about how many people actually said that it was a catalyst for positive change. That's interesting. Yeah. One thing that I wish they had done is they didn't give percentages for any of these. Like they just said, here are the themes, but, Mm -hmm. or sometimes they said like, you know, 18 out of 20 or whatever, but not all the time. Mm -hmm. Um, And then also they felt that the separation allowed them to learn more about themselves. So, and also to just recognize things about themselves. So like, they were like, oh, I'm actually a really independent person. Or, you know, wow, I'm, I'm a really resilient person. I can bounce back from things. And then the two final themes were pretty, I mean, they kind of went together, I think. So one of them was separation is not sustainable. So despite these benefits maybe that they perceived, they definitely saw it as something that needed to end. So the ambiguity, the uncertainty was really emotionally taxing especially with this pressure of like if this is going to end like I need to make a decision or my spouse needs to make a decision maybe I'm not even fully in control maybe my spouse is the one who is not sure what to do 
interestingly, they all reported that they became more tolerant of the ambiguity as the separation continued. So they said like, yeah, at the beginning it felt torturous, but now it's just like painful. Um, but they all wanted it to end um, because a lot of them said like, again, like we said in at the beginning of the themes, like this is this in-between period. My life is on hold and I need to get, I need to get back to it. So basically they were like, no matter what the outcome is, I just want the separation to be over. Yeah. That's exactly right. That sucks. Um, And then the final theme was the outcome is unclear. So even though they all wanted it to end or most of them wanted it to end, I think it was actually all of them. Yeah, it was all of them said this needs to end. Like none of them were like particularly like, like it was still very unclear at that point. So for some participants, um, the separation did give them clarity about what they wanted for the future of their marriage. Um, And I think it was four said... Uh, for those people who said that they wanted their marriage to end, or for some, for those four people who said, I know what I want now, all four of them wanted a divorce. None of them wanted to reconcile, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. none of them had actually begun divorce proceedings at the time of the interview, even though they said they knew that that's what they wanted. And in fact, I think like two or three of them were like, yeah, I want a divorce, um, but I don't know if I want to go through like the court proceedings and stuff like that oh damn that is a real that's a hassle yeah like they seem very ambiguous about that and then for the majority for the rest of the people oh and then also the main thing was that those four people who said like I know what I want I want a divorce I think three of them their spouse had severe untreated mental illness and the other one the spouse had a substance abuse problem oh wow that's crazy but for everyone else no one else had separations because of serious reasons like that, and no one else said that the separation brought clarity. And in fact, many of them said, actually, the situation is more confusing and more challenging because the separation isn't really doing anything. Yeah, see, that makes sense to me because it's like, how can you work on a problem by just ignoring it and pretending it doesn't exist and seeing how that works? Yeah. (laughs) So some of them talked about that the, that the separation um, made them kind of weigh, or the separation involved weighing the factors involved in an ultimate decision about their marriage's future. Um, so they were thinking about like, what, are the, what would the effects of divorce be on my children? Um, how would this impact my religious beliefs? Um, how would this impact my finances? But um, many felt like the separation actually represented a movement toward divorce whether they wanted it or not because they said that the longer they were separated like the more distance they had the less contact they had with their spouse the less their lives were intertwined um the more likely it felt like they would end up divorcing even if they didn't know that they wanted to because it was just like well now we're just separate people like nothing has changed and we're not like by separating, we are separating ourselves, we're growing apart, and you have to make a yeah, specific... Yeah, we're just making it easier for us to divorce. Yes. Yeah. So, what does it all mean? Previous research treated separation as inevitably leading to divorce, um, and although it appears that people who are in ambiguous separations, so, like, they said, oh, we're separating, but there were, like, no rules or guidelines, um, 
those people don't necessarily separate with the intention to divorce, but they do see it as like eventually leading to divorce because there were no goals and the lack of entanglement and the increasing distance leaded, would lead to what the authors called like this slide to divorce. Um, and many participants spent the separation period weighing the pros and cons of divorce. And although some felt like it would be a viable option, like a perfect world, the realities of like the resulting financial burden, like especially for women, made them feel like it might just be better to stay in the marriage because of financial constraints. Um, in general, the ambiguity of separation is perceived as just incredibly difficult and stressful, unsustainable, and affecting the interactions of partners in negative ways because there are no clear boundaries. Other issues from the separation include like lack of support from others um, and others just like really not understanding what's going on with them. And then Ultimately, while most people did say, oh, there were some benefits to ambiguous separation, overall, it was just seen as a really kind of distressing and confusing situation that they felt would lead to maybe an unwanted income like divorce because of this inherent lack of clarity and goals and boundaries. So basically, like if you're going to go into a separation, it needs to be very clear exactly what it involves like we're going to separate for this long this is allowed this is not allowed like this is what we're going to do to change um and like even even to have an idea in your mind of what you want from the separation is really important so like if the separation is going to lead to divorce you need to decide that if the separation is going to lead to reconciliation like you need to work toward that that's it Dang. That is wild. <laughs> I think it makes sense. Yeah. And I think that ties in with our pop culture connect. <laughs> I love when that happens. I do, well, yeah, it's, it's like it, we don't even design it on purpose. <laughs> so, um, Siri and I did a bonus episode where we watched an episode of Friends. Siri has never, ever seen an episode other than... You know, the one that we watched, which was season three, episode 16, by the way. Yeah, it took us like an um, hour and a half to get through a 20-minute episode. <laughs> it was pretty incredible to watch Siri experience Friends for the first time. As it would be, I think, to see anyone experience like a cultural phenomenon for the first time. <laughs> it's just interesting. Because I feel like it sort of shaped me in a way. When did you start watching it? I don't know. When I was like early teen. An early teen? 14, 15. What? Where did you watch yeah. it when you were 14, 15? Netflix. It wasn't. What? Yeah. Huh. I can't even remember being 14, <laughs> 15. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to give you. So a little bit of more information sort of to pad that episode that we watched. According to Wikipedia, Friends is an American television sitcom created by David Crane and Marta Kaufman, which aired on NBC from September 22, 1994 to May 6, 2004, lasting 10 seasons. Wait, so during the course of time that Friends was on air, 
all three you we were all me born. and anya were born mm-hmm. that, yeah okay that's funny yeah a lot happened <laughs> in a decade <laughs> with an ensemble you know what else happened 9-11 oh my god with an ensemble cast starring Jennifer Aniston, Courtney Cox, Lisa Kudrow, Matt LeBlanc, Matthew Perry, and David Schwimmer, the show revolves around six friends in their 20s and 30s who live in Manhattan, New York City. Wait, how old were they supposed to be six... when it started? There's some debate on that because, of course, they never keep any of the like concrete details like characters' birthdays, the length of pregnancies, based in reality. Um, but, it, you know mid-20s to early 30s okay which I think they were for the most part well I just like had this realization the other day because I was like watching new girl and I was like oh like I'm almost the age that the like that they were supposed to be when the show started no they're in their 30s no Schmidt turned 28 in one of the early episodes Mm. okay Hang on, quick detour. Okay. I was, like, freaking out. Jess starts that series with a master's. Yeah. In education. Yeah, you can get your master's by the time you're 20, 25, 26. Exactly, that's what I'm saying. So you're, like, at the same spot. You're just going a little bit further. Jess turned 30 in season one. Oh, she was older. So why was Schmidt so much younger than that? Boom. I don't think he is. They went to college together. Yeah, that's why I was confused. Maybe he was turning 29. I just very firmly remember him having a birthday oh, before Oh, I 30. remember. I No, yeah, he did turn 29 during the run. So he's like a year younger. Okay, so maybe that was during season one. Okay, okay. I feel better because I'm like. Oh, yeah, in the first season he does turn 29 because that's the first party that Julie goes to. Oh, yeah. And I guess, like, I shouldn't feel too bad because, like, at least I don't have five roommates nothing wrong with having roommates but I, I'm like I'm like oh, okay I'm in like a similar stage of life like I <laughs> also everyone on that show has the most random jobs Cece is a model in her 30s Nick is a bartender Schmidt has a pretty normal job Winston was a pro basketball player what is he, he was on the radio oh, he was an officer that's what it was he's a cop they yeah. are a truly representative sample if you were looking at like jobs <laughs> like you get a little bit I of everything love that show so much it's time for a rewatch <laughs> anyway back to friends yes the series was nominated for 62 primetime emmy awards winning the outstanding comedy series award in 2002 for its eighth season the show ranked number 21 on tv guides 50 greatest tv shows of all time and number seven on empire magazine's the 50 greatest tv shows of all time in 1997, the episode The One with the Prom video was ranked number 100 on TV Guide's 100 Greatest Episodes of All, episodes of all Time. That was almost the one that we watched. Mm. In 2013, Friends was ranked number 24 on the Writers Guild of America's 101 Best Written TV Series of All Time and number 28 on TV Guide's 60 Best TV Series of All Time. The sitcom's cast members returned for a reunion special, aired on HBO Max on May 27th, 2021. Okay, wait, so that reunion, like, what was that? It was just them getting together and talking about friends. Oh, and I wondered if they filmed point, a Jennifer... new one, which would have been so cool. <laughs> Jennifer Aniston, I didn't watch the whole thing, to be honest, it was really boring. But at one point, she mentions that, like, everything about the set is, like, the same, even the little tchotchkes on the shelves and, like, everything... And uh, it's been in, like, storage for 
ever, like since the end. And those set designers are just really, really good, Jen. They use that set for other things. Oh, it's yeah, just I like remember. a set on WB. That is how little <laughs> I guess the actors know about what like the set designers and everyone else is doing. Yeah. <laughs> so the premise is Rachel Green, a sheltered but friendly woman, flees her wedding day and wealthy yet unfulfilling life and finds childhood friend Monica Geller. Okay, can someone give me a wealthy yet unfulfilling chef. life? I love that. That sounds great. <laughs> Rachel becomes a waitress at West Village Coffee House Central Perk after she moves into Monica's apartment above Central Perk and joins Monica's group of single friends in their mid-twenties. Previous roommate Phoebe Buffet, an eccentric masseuse and musician, neighbor Joey Tribbiani, a dim-witted yet loyal struggling actor and womanizer, Joey's roommate Chandler Bing, a sarcastic self-deprecating data processor, is that what he does? Wow. <laughs> and Monica's older brother and Chandler's college roommate, Ross Geller, a sweet-natured but insecure paleontologist. Okay, can I just say, it's so interesting that, like, their jobs are so important, because are their jobs important in the show? Yeah. They are? I would say so. Okay. Especially Rachel's. Okay. Because she's never had a job before. Oh. What was her wealthy yet unfulfilling life? Housewife. Oh, okay. Went to university to get her MRS degree type deal. Oh my god, stop. <laughs> Episodes depict the friends' comedic and romantic adventures and career issues, such as Joey auditioning for roles or Rachel seeking jobs in the fashion industry. The six characters each have many dates and serious relationships, such as Monica with Richard Burke and Ross with Emily Waltham. She comes back later, don't worry. Ross and Rachel's intermittent relationship is the most often recurring storyline. During the ten seasons of the show, they repeatedly date and break up. Over the course of the series, Ross briefly marries Emily. Ross and Rachel have a child together after a one-night stand. Chandler and Monica date and marry each other, and Phoebe marries Mike Hannigan. Other frequently- oh, spoiler alert, wait, I guess, for this whole podcast. So wait, Phoebe doesn't marry someone in the group? No. Does he become, like, a she recurring just finds him. character? In the last season or so, I think. Other frequently recurring characters include Ross and Monica's parents, Jack and Judy Geller from Long Island, Ross's ex-wife Carol Willick, their son Ben Geller, and Carol's lesbian partner Susan Bunch, Central Perk barista Gunther, Chandler's extremely annoying and obnoxious but good-natured ex-girlfriend Janice Goralnik. I resent that description of Janice. I love her. I think she's the best character on the show. And Phoebe's evil twin sister, Ursula, who I also find hilarious. What? <laughs> That's a now line. Now let's talk about our couple. <laughs> Ross is a smart, funny, and romantic guy with a chip on his shoulder. When the series begins, his pregnant wife, Carol, has just left him for her friend, Susan, with whom she's been having an affair. He has also just reconnected with his teenage crush, his sister's friend, Rachel. Whoa, whoa, wait. So he's a dad from the beginning of the series? He has. Yeah, the, actually, um... Carol gives birth to Ben in the first season, pretty early on, very early on. I'm guessing that they don't feature his child very often. Absolutely not. They never do in TV shows. I don't know why. <laughs> They're boring. I would love to see cute babies on the screen. They're not, like, dating anyone <laughs> or sabotaging anything. There's no hot goss. <laughs> Useless. <laughs> Rachel is a sweet, adventurous, and spunky lady who narrowly escaped a life of resentment, disloyalty, and a loveless marriage by leaving her sleazy fiancé, Barry, at the altar after finding him cheating on her with her maid of honor. A lot to unpack you there. You didn't mention that. I would have remembered that. Though she's... 
Well, these are brief descriptions. There's a whole. It was ten years of show. <laughs> <laughs> Though she's more than ready to jump into the exciting life of a New York fashion designer, her naivete and sheltered beginnings make the transition a little difficult. Yeah. Now, how did they get together? As we know, Ross has had a crush on Rachel since they were both in high school, but he was always too nervous to tell her. And after he met and fell in love with his future ex-wife, Carol, future this crush ex- seemed to turn into a more... <laughs> Stop! I'm sorry, I didn't know what else to say. Uh, this crush seemed to turn into more of a fond memory of a childhood friend. But when they reconnect in their mid-twenties, both... Sing- well, okay, so she was in, his mid- in her mid-twenties, he was like early thirties, whatever. Both single. It becomes incredibly obvious that Rosh's crush has returned full force. Rachel remains wholly unaware of any interest Ross has in her, and thinks of him as her best dealer brother turned close friend. Unfortunate. For Over him. Over the beginning of the show, they... <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Over the beginning of the show, they share many quirky adventures, like Ross teaching Rachel how to do laundry at a laundromat, and although Ross is always looking for opportunities to date Rachel, the timing never seems to work out. Okay, wait, wait. When you say the timing never seems to work out, is, is it the timing, or is it that Rachel doesn't want to date him? Kind of both. You'll see. Here we go. Okay. After Ross leaves on a six-month-long trip to China for an archaeological dig, Rachel realizes that she has feelings for him. She goes to meet him at the airport to surprise him with a ride home and her confession, but is blindsided when Ross returns with a girlfriend, Julie, a friend from college he reconnected with on the dig. Later on, Ross finds out why Rachel picked him up from the airport and becomes conflicted about being with Julie. At the suggestion of his friends Chandler and Joey, Ross makes a pros and cons list to compare Julie and Rachel and finally decide who he should be with. He ends up choosing Rachel, but after Rachel finds the list, she rejects him. They remain friends, but things are understandably tense, and it seems like things between them just aren't meant to be. Until one night, when she and Ross are watching old home videos with Ross's sister Monica and their friends. The video is footage from Monica and Rachel's prom night. The girls are getting ready for the dance and excited for their boyfriends to come pick them up, and Ross is playing the role of cool older brother who's a sophisticated college student now and totally over prom. When hours pass and Monica's boyfriend, Tripp, has already come to whisk her away, it seems as though Rachel's date has stood her up. She starts crying and says there's no way she can go to prom alone. Seeing this, Ross's mother, Judy, realizes this is an opportunity for Ross to finally tell Rachel how he feels about her and tells Ross to go upstairs and put on his dad's tuxedo. He gets dressed and fashions a bunch of flowers from a vase in the hallway into a bouquet, but when he's coming down the stairs to ask Rachel if he can be her date, he just catches the edge of her dress whipping out the front door as Monica, Tripp, Rachel, and her date, who had finally shown up, rush off to the dance, yelling their goodbyes. Ross is left on the stairs, still holding the flowers, and the video cuts out when Judy tells her husband to turn off the camera. Oh my <laughs> god, I, I feel crushed. Like, I feel really crushed. That's why... I didn't want to, us to watch this episode and have it be the first episode you've ever seen of Friends because it's such a good episode and it's so sweet and romantic and sad that I feel like it would sway your opinion mm-hmm. too much on what we needed to see, which was the break. I just feel like we've all... Because that's, of course, what we're talking about. Yeah. Like, I just feel like all, like this is such a universal feeling and it's, like, viscerally painful even just hearing about it. Rachel, who never knew about what happened that night, turns to an extremely embarrassed Ross and asks if he was really going to take her to the dance. He nods, seemingly too mortified to say it out loud. She walks over to him and kisses him before they share a long hug. Okay. So that's, I mean, that's sweet. It's interesting, though. That feels like maybe, I don't know. 
a really big turnaround after the tenseness right before that well there have been a few yeah yeah she does care about him a lot i guess yeah when you have a history like that they date happily for a while and during this time rachel finally gets offered a position in the fashion industry after meeting a man named mark at a diner monica is working at who admires her passion and technical eye for menswear he offers her a job at bloomingdale's Rachel, determined to prove herself not only in the fashion world, but also to Barry, her ex-best friend, and her parents, who cut her off after she left Barry, uh, she quickly becomes consumed with work, much to the frustration of Ross, who has also been suspicious and jealous of Mark since he approached Rachel in a diner. Oh my god. Okay, so that was part of it. I didn't know that the guy was part of it. The guy at work. Well, this is just, yeah. Which, this is so funny to me, because I feel like like, I've heard this before of, like, being jealous of, like, co-workers of the opposite sex that your spouse works with. But, like, I feel like, <laughs> I don't know. I always, like, whenever Pace tells me, oh, like, I have a new female co-worker, I'm always like, oh, my God, that's awesome. Because it's, like, women are so underrepresented in the technical <laughs> art field that I'm, like, girl power. Yeah. In fact, I wish someone, I wish sense. a woman would take your job, Pace, because really, like, Little too oh fe- little God. too male dominated. You're you're perpetuating the problem here. <laughs> okay, wow, that's a lot. First of all, but yeah, I feel like until also like someone gives you a reason to make you suspicious of them in terms of like your partner, it's like I don't know why would you care? Yeah, exactly. I mean, in this case, Mark did approach Rachel in a diner, but he it really was to talk literally. About yeah. So. Um, actually, I would like to point this out, though. Later in the series, we do find out that Mark is and has been romantically interested of, in Rachel, Well, how could... I mean, of course. <laughs> in this show. Just wouldn't make a... But he said, you know, he obviously wouldn't make a move, you know, when she's with Ross. And for a lot of them knowing each other, he had a girlfriend that he really liked. So, yeah. I just want to point that out. Yeah. After Rachel calls Ross from work and tells him that she has to cancel their anniversary dinner minutes before it's supposed to begin, Ross is disappointed but says he understands. He then packs up their dinner and heads to her office to set up a surprise anniversary date. Rachel, who is in the middle of a shipping crisis, is angry at Ross for not respecting her job and tells him to leave. Ross, angry and upset, does. They later meet up to talk, but after realizing that both of them are expecting the other to apologize, it quickly devolves into an argument. Rachel, overwhelmed with trying to balance a gateway job into her dream industry and a serious romantic relationship, asks Ross if they can take a break. Ross originally misunderstands this as Rachel asking to take a break from their fight and agrees, offering to get them some food. But after Rachel clarifies, he is clearly wounded and leaves without saying anything. That night, Ross goes out to a club with a girl Chandler and Joey introduced him to earlier that day, Chloe. And thinking that he and Rachel are broken up, they end up sleeping together. The next morning, he wakes up to a voicemail from Rachel saying she changed her mind and regrets asking for a break, and says she's going to go to his apartment before work and talk to him in person. Ross is overjoyed to find out that he and Rachel are going to get back together, but immediately panics, realizing that Rachel's on her way to see him and the girl he just had in a one-night stand <laughs> is still in his apartment. God. Ross explains the situation to her, and she rushes to gather her things, but as she's about to open the front door, Rachel knocks. Ross opens the door, and while Rachel is distracted, Chloe sneaks out behind her and wishes Ross good luck with a thumbs up before leaving. They get back together, but Ross quickly confesses that he had sex with Chloe the night before. Rachel, feeling betrayed, says that this has changed the way she sees Ross, and she can't be with him anymore, knowing now that he's the kind of person who would hurt her in that way. Ross becomes angry, 
pointing out that they were broken up when it happened, but Rachel says it was the fact that he moved on so fast that Chloe was still in his apartment when Rachel came to make up. That has irreparably damaged her opinion of him and their relationship. Ambiguous separation. Although, although this is, <laughs> we talked about this before, it's like, even in an ambiguous separation, um, like, it's, it's like, no, this isn't a divorce, this isn't a breakup. But here, like, she did say that she wanted to break up. Well, she said she wanted a break. So it was one of those ambiguous situations. Okay. Things are very tense among the friend group. Ross and Rachel are unable to hang out in a group setting together, causing a rift. And things only get worse when Ross shows up to the first trip they take as a gang together since the breakup with a new gorgeous girlfriend, Bonnie. Rachel takes jabs at Ross and Bonnie the entire trip, but mostly Ross. Bonnie is very friendly and sweet, and while hanging out with Rachel alone, she tells her how much she misses having a shaved head because her hair requires so much upkeep. Rachel, very helpfully, shaves Bonnie's head, and after they surprise Ross with a reveal, it becomes obvious that Ross had only brought Bonnie along to make Rachel jealous, and now that she was bald, he no longer saw her as a threat to Rachel. Oh, that is so shitty. He becomes flustered, and after a brief argument with Rachel, she reveals that she's still in love with him. She invites him up to her room and and heads up herself. Bonnie, unaware of the conversation Ross and Rachel have had, goes up to her in Ross's room and tells him she'll see him there. Ross, faced once again with the choice between Rachel and his current partner, goes upstairs and is presented with two doors, one to Rachel and one to Bonnie. This season ends on a cliffhanger with Ross opening a door, but it's not shown which one it is, and the audience being left wondering who he chose. That's a really big cliffhanger. (laughs) When the next season finally came around, they find out that it didn't matter which it was because both Bonnie and Rachel are in the room. Rachel was helping Bonnie put aloe on her freshly saved scalp, and after they're done, Bonnie thanks her and wishes her a good night before leaving, telling Ross she'll see him in a minute. Rachel and Ross get back together, and Bonnie is never seen or heard from ever again. What? Yeah. She's just, yeah. God. Okay, seriously, sometimes this is just lazy writing. (laughs) Okay, Uh, this is not, I, like, this is not, none of this is, like, none of this is healthy, like, I just don't see how this could be a healthier relationship with all this bad behavior. It does seem a little toxic. It's just like people behaving badly over and over again. And it's like the whole, I guess, like, I think that a big part of relationship is that you, you make each other better and you make each other's lives better. And like, I just am not seeing that. Yeah. Ross assumes that Rachel wanting to get back together means that she has forgiven him for sleeping with Chloe, but soon finds out through a long long letter by Rachel she has not moved past the event and wants Ross to take full blame for all the issues they had the first time they were together before she can get back into a relationship with him Ross is offended by her insisting that she caused no issues while they were together and refuses to take full responsibility for their breakup they once again break up this time seemingly for good both agreeing they have irreconcilable differences and should just be friends I don't think they're just gonna be friends things go back to normal for the most part Both Ross and Rachel are being not only civil but friendly with each other once again, much to the relief of their friends. Eventually, Rachel is asked out by a guy she's had a crush on who frequents her store, but soon realizes that she double-booked herself and is supposed to show her boss's daughter, Emily, who's visiting him from London around the city the same night. While explaining the predicament- while (laughs) While explaining her predicament to her friends, Ross offers to entertain Emily, since she and Rachel had planned to go to the opera and Ross loves opera singing. After Emily makes a rough first impression on the group, Rachel feels guilty about asking Ross to cover for her so she can go on her date, but does show anyway. (laughs) 
Monica later calls Ross to ask how his night with Emily had gone, and he reveals that Emily had just been jet-lagged and frustrated trying to get around in an unfamiliar place on her own, and feeling as though she had been foisted off on strangers. But after she and Ross attended the opera together, he found out she's a kind and interesting person. They hit off so well, in fact, he's still with her in a B&B type place outside the city and has to end the call abruptly after Emily calls to him saying there's a deer outside eating fruit from the orchard. Okay, well, wait, wait, wait. I, Emily is an adult? Yes. Okay. See, when She's you like said the same age as boss's me. daughter, I was like, oh, yeah, like a 10-year-old. And then I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> Ross and Emily continue dating, and it turns out she's as great as Ross said. She gets along with all of his friends, including Rachel, and everyone is happy to see them together. Eventually, Emily has to return to London and asks Ross to come with her. He says he can't move to England because of his son and job, but asks her to marry him and move in with him in New York. They begin to plan the wedding, but when they find out that Emily's dream location is about to be demolished, Ross decides to move the wedding up by a lot so that they can still get married there. Everything seems to be going well, even though Rachel couldn't attend the wedding, so she stayed in New York to help take care of her and Ross's friend, Phoebe, who is eight months pregnant. But after Rachel reveals to Phoebe that the real reason she didn't go is because she's still in love with Ross, she panics and rushes to the airport to stop the wedding. Oh my god. Okay, sometimes, like, you just have to make a choice and, like, stick with the choice. Like, yeah, this was a bad choice. When you're though. married. <laughs> Right before the wedding, Ross runs into Rachel outside the venue, and he's surprised and excited she was able to make it after all. They talk briefly, and although Rachel went all the way to England to tell Ross how she feels about him, she decides not to and wishes him a happy wedding day before ushering him in to be married. <laughs> Changed her mind again. Oh my god. The wedding goes off without a hitch, until the vows. The priest turns to Ross and asks him to repeat after him, I, Ross, take thee, Emily. To which Ross responds, I, Ross, take thee, Rachel. He quickly corrects himself with a chuckle and attempts to proceed oh. with the ceremony. Mm -mm. Emily, <laughs> Emily is obviously not happy with what just happened, but doesn't stop the wedding. Seriously? After okay, I'd be out of there. I'm like, bye. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I, I can't understand her decision there. Like you want to you, you get out before herself. it's legal. <laughs> <laughs> After it ends, she locks herself in a room and refuses to speak with Ross and ends up leaving the venue without telling him. After not being able to get in contact with Emily and being rebuffed by her family, Ross resigns to the fact that he's not going that she is not going to stay with him and decides to go on their honeymoon alone. He runs into Rachel leaving the hotel at the same time he is and offers her Emily's ticket. This was pre-9-11, by the way, so they could do <laughs> stuff like that. Saying he would rather go with a friend. While he and Rachel are boarding the plane, Ross sees Emily watching him leave for their honeymoon with Rachel. So she ends up going like she's like, oh, no, I'll go. Rachel said, I'll go with you. No, I know. But then Emily goes to the airport. Well, yeah, she was there. Okay. Uh, Emily leaves and Ross rushes after her, leaving Rachel on the plane. And Rachel ends up going on Ross and Emily's honeymoon by herself. Honestly, that seems like an ideal vacation to me. Yes. Yeah. Free ticket. It was to Greece, too. So. Yeah, that, that, yeah. Yep. In fact, if I could just do that, that'd be great. <laughs> For the next season or so, Ross and Rachel remain friends, but Emily and Ross end up separating. Neither of them date anyone seriously during this time, though Rachel has a couple flings, with Rachel still working hard on establishing her career, and Ross dealing with the aftermath of his second divorce. Is it really a divorce if you were married for one second? <laughs> it really, I guess it counts technically, but oh, just wait, it gets worse. 
After a trip to Vegas ends in the friend group getting blackout drunk and splitting up for various misadventures, Ross and Rachel end up getting married after stumbling across the chapel, but they don't find out until the next morning. Ross says he'll take care of the annulment, but secretly stays legally married to Rachel after having a minor breakdown about getting divorced three times by the age of 30. That seems like a personal problem. Of course, Rachel finds out and insists on the annulment. With Ross and Rachel as friends once again, and after an awkward period where Ross was dating a former student and Rachel was dating said student's father, things go back to normal. Oh my god, you can't just slip that in there. Over the next season, there are a few moments between Ross and Rachel and definitely some romantic tension, but they still remain just friends. The season after that, though, they reconcile in a one-night stand. Both agree it was just a moment of weakness and that nothing needs to come of it, but Rachel gets pregnant and decides to keep the baby. They still decide not to get back together, but agree to co-parent, and Ross asks Rachel to move in with him for the end of her pregnancy. After their daughter, Emma, is born, they live separately, Ross in his apartment and Rachel sharing an apartment with her and Ross's mutual friend, Joey, and across the hall from her and Ross's best friend and Ross's sister and brother-in-law, Monica and Chandler. Oh my god, that's a lot of people. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, okay, so she lives with Joey across the hall from Monica and Chandler, and he lives in his own apartment. Exactly. Okay. In the next season, things get more complicated as Rachel and Joey start dating. Even though it's casual, Ross has an extreme reaction, and upon seeing how distressed them being together makes Ross, Joey and Rachel decide to end things. Oh, that's an interesting reaction. Yeah. <laughs> it was weird. He was But being, also, like, I guess, dating. About it. Like, dating somebody you live with that you were originally roommates with, but you still live with them, is also kind of weird to me. Like, there's nowhere to escape if it goes badly. Uh, yeah, and that's what, exactly what happened. <laughs> in the final season, Ross and Rachel are still just friends. Ross is torn on where they are as a couple, but after Rachel gets a job offer that would move her full-time to Paris, he realizes he can't live without her, but is reluctant to ask her to derail her career for him. She tells him that she has to take this job for her career, and that she's come all this way for this exact opportunity, and he says he understands that he won't try to stop her or convince her to stay. Despite that, he freaks out later, thinking about the love of his life and their daughter are leaving to Paris, and calls her to beg her to get off the plane. Yeah, that's the issue I see here, is like, you're worried about this woman who you've broken up and gotten together with and across the years, you're not sure if it's going to work out, you're not very invested, and not your daughter your young daughter moving to another country to be fair she's still a baby at this point so she hasn't developed like super clear personality so i don't know maybe they don't even get along (laughs) she doesn't answer the phone and he frantically wonders if she had already taken off but when he goes to leave his apartment he finds her and emma on his doorstep with all their luggage she tells him she couldn't get on the plane and that she wants to be with him the series ends with them together Mm, interesting i don't think that lasts (laughs) In real life, this is interesting. Actually, first, let's get your take. What do you do? You think they should have ended up together? Please say no. No, of course not. And I don't think that they lasted or had a like. That's the thing is like, one of the most important indicators of whether a marriage is distressed or not distressed is its stability. You, in order for anything to last long time, it needs to be stable, right? And that's the same thing with like romantic relationships. Like they need to be overall stable. And this is just like a car, like a car crash. <laughs> it's like a bridge <laughs> coming down. It was pretty crazy. Yeah. But what's interesting is 
In real life, the actors who played Ross and Rachel, David Schwimmer and Jennifer Aniston, apparently had huge crushes on each other during the first few seasons of Friends, but apparently nothing ever came of it. David said, The first season I had a major crush on Jen, and I think we both, at some point, were crushing hard on each other, but it was like two ships passing because one of us was always in a relationship and we never crossed that boundary. Jennifer corroborated this story, saying, We were in relationships. It was always never the right time, and it wouldn't have worked. The beauty of that was that whatever feelings we had, we just literally channeled everything into Ross and Rachel, and I think that's maybe why it resonated the way it did. But no, we never, on my life, and Courtney and Lisa would know and can vouch for me. So see, this is how I think, like, it really plays out in real life if if the people are normal, or, like, stable people is, like, oh, we had crushes on each other, um, it never really worked out, uh, so we just went on with our lives. Like, that's the healthy thing to do. Well, in real life, there's nothing keeping you together, generally. There's no reason yeah. to see this other person every single other day. They're not incredibly closely involved with literally every person you are also closely involved with. <laughs> that's true. You know, in, yeah. like, New Girl and Friends and, uh, you know, all these things – a lot of these people are roommates or they work together, you know, and so there's all these factors that pull them back together, whereas in real life, that person's kind of dead to you, even accidentally, you know, you just don't see them anymore. World's a big place. Yes, but I think even, like, even in people who do stay in touch and stay friends over the years, at some times you can have, like, crushes and you can still just remain friends like it just doesn't work out so let's just stay friends and we'll email and we'll go get dinner when we're in the same city you know what I mean yeah yeah and yet people are still so obsessed with the concept of Ross and Rachel getting together in real life that after they both filmed the reunion special last year rumors started circulating that it had rekindled old feelings between the two and they had been in contact once again They were in contact. They were at the reunion together. Yeah, they filmed something. (laughs) (laughs) Both quickly addressed and denied these rumors. David simply said that it's not true, and Jennifer said, That was bizarre. I could not believe that, actually. Like, really? That's my brother. But I understand it, though. It just shows how hopeful people are for fantasies, for dreams to come true. Yeah, that's actually a very, I think that's a really understanding take on the situation, which is exactly that. Like, people are romantic at heart and they want to see things work out and they want to see like true love that's sweet but they are both single right now so and jennifer actually just said that she's ready to date again and she's looking for someone who's not in the entertainment industry so if you're cute and not an actor fine hit up jen Jen (laughs) ann if you work in set design you can teach her about how how sets work (laughs) (laughs) great idea that is so, so interesting. That's, you know, friends. I think that was, you know, interesting. I feel like some other we have some fun TV shows coming up like The Office. Mhm. Glee. Are there are there going to be any shows you think where like the the people actually have healthy long-term relationships because this was so unhealthy? Uh do you mean the characters? I mean the characters. Yeah. Uh oof. Well, I feel like Nick and Jess are very well. Oh, yeah. I think all the honestly, I think all the couples in New Girl. Remember, Schmidt, Schmidt had the Cece. dating two people. He was dating Cece and that other girl. But that was like a decade ago. No, 
They're married with a child. No, I know, but I'm just saying I don't think that's a healthy way to start a relationship. Even if it ultimately ends up okay. It. They've addressed it. They took sep- they, they they separated for a while and then they worked through it and then she forgave him and she saw it as an empowering experience and it made her raise her standards when it came to dating Schmidt and it showed and it it, it allowed Schmidt to be less insecure and jealous later cuz remember he was always accusing her of cheating on him. A lot of projecting going on there maybe of like a, an inner fear. And there the relationship that they end up building is just so strong. And I, them co-parenting as well, I think was something amazing to see. I think we're gonna Schmidt debate. We're gonna debate this time. later. How dare you say anything? And also, we all can this. accept that um, Allie and Winston are. Oh, they have the relationship healthiest marriage I've ever seen. That that definitely. They are the most well-adjusted couple on TV. Yeah. Oh, don't even get me started on Jake and Amy, though, from Brooklyn Nine-Nine. I hate that couple. I hate yeah, them. I'm not I hate a fan. I them together. I love them both separately. I hate them together. No, I don't think they should have ended up together. They don't have any chemistry, and yeah. They have zero of the same priorities and long-term goals, and they both of them are so dysfunctional that they never thought to talk about it. That does not make a healthy couple. I will say the only thing about their couple is they should have them separated but still have a baby together because they are both equally invested in being a parent and an involved parent and and like being a parent amy didn't want to have kids yeah but i think i think she she turned it around also that might have been an interesting place for them to do accidentally and accidental pregnancy amy doesn't want very much involvement so jake takes primary custody because he always did want kids that would have been is a that good... what happened i didn't watch the no no no. no it didn't but i think that would have been an interesting way to take that okay well can i bring up something interesting i'm assuming the podcast episode is just over at this point but can i bring up something interesting about brooklyn 99 is that i just saw the last season and actually there's an episode where both of them have huge projects that are super important to them i watched work, that and they are Okay, how can you tell me that that's a good couple? So that was the most dysfunctional thing I've ever no, seen. No, that's what I'm saying. Like, I wish that they didn't have them as a couple. I wish that they had them as co-parents. Yes, because yeah, yeah. I just, I just think it would work much better that way. And also, I just, I don't like the way Brooklyn Nine Nine ended it. I don't like that they introduced marriage problems with Captain Holt, even though that was never seemed to be an issue, and they just did it for drama. I oh, just yeah. like don't like any of it. That was so random, and that whole thing that brought them back together was Kevin seeing that he was on a dating app. Oh, I haven't watched all of it yet. Is that how it? Is that how it goes? Oh my god, that would yeah. Captain Holt would never go on a dating app. Sorry to spoil it. That's ridiculous. It. The whole situation was disgusting and horrible, and I hated it. And it was really disappointing, but also, it's funny because they introduce marital problems so late in the game, really, when we've never. Oh seen my it god! And suddenly. And what's funny is. Yeah, and what's funny is in the last season of The Office, the huge couple of the series, Jim and Pam, the will they, won't they, the Ross and Rachel, they end up getting together and they get married and they have kids and all of a sudden, sort of less suddenly, we start to see these issues in their marriage, um, especially when Jim has to go work in a different state for a few days a week and the whole thing was really rough. And then they were going to get, they, the writer said that they were going to have them get divorced in the last season, but they thought it would take up, like, too much 
space. There wasn't enough time for it, really. Oh, that's interesting. That's a really interesting thing to do. It's like, oh, yeah, they should be divorced, but uh, we don't have the screen time here. Didn't J.K. Rowling famously say that Ron and Hermione probably would never actually stay together? Yeah, which I totally agree with. Because Hermione should have been with Harry. No one in Glee should have ended should have ended up with who they ended up with. I like stopped watching, and so I don't know who anyone ended up with on Glee. <laughs> we are being summoned for a drinking night with our family. Oh, currently, oh, we are. I'm on Do Not. So disturb. we should probably wrap this up. Okay, thank you, listeners. This was a good one. Thank you. See you next week. Bye.